With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 74th episode of my show. I do this show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and I also do it to provide worldwide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and also to help you to better protect your privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Podtoppin, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. I want to thank all of you out there for listening. Right now, I just passed the 114,000 listeners throughout the world, and I do truly appreciate all of you. My April Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of March. Please sign up for them. I've provided them free since 2007, and I've done this in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues and to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees because I know that your budgets oftentimes do not allow for this. Now, you can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. So, I am so excited for today's show, and it's for multiple reasons. Today is, first of all, the first time I've done my show on-site with my guest face-to-face. All my other shows have been recorded with me and my guests in separate locations using Skype or over the phone. And this is also the first time I've had the great opportunity to speak with the person I've wanted to speak with for the last five years about what has become one of the most talked about lottery frauds in history. It's very fascinating, especially because it was perpetrated by a trusted insider who had full access, it sounds like, to virtually all aspects of security controls for the lottery systems. And it happened right here in Iowa. So I'm talking about the Iowa lottery fraud. Now, this is also known as, I've heard it 
called anyway, the hot lotto fraud. And it was taken to court in 2015. So I actually wrote about this in one of my Dell Computers blog posts back in 2015 when the trial was going on. And I thought about the theoretical ways that I thought at the time that Eddie Tipton, who was the information security director at the Multi-State Lottery Association might have accomplished that fraud, taking advantage of not only his insider trusted access to the lottery equipment and systems, but also he was the information security officer, good grief. So he had um, access to so many different settings and he had in-depth insight into how everything worked. Now, after today's chat with my guest, I'm going to repost that blog article, and I'm going to provide more information at the beginning of it, including some more of the actual facts that I learned from my discussion here today, because my guest today probably has more knowledge about this case than anyone else with, well, with the possible exception of Eddie Tipton himself. So why does he have this insight? Because today my guest is Rob Sand. Now, Rob is from right here in Iowa. He was the assistant attorney general in the Iowa attorney general's office from 2010 through 2017. And in 2018, Rob was elected Iowa state auditor. Now, while he was an assistant attorney general, Rob successfully prosecuted Eddie Tipton for the Iowa lottery fraud incidents. Now, you can see more about Rob on my Voice America show site where I have some bio about him. But for now, I am so excited to speak with Rob about this fraud scandal. So, Rob, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be my guest today. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me uh, uh, very much. Really appreciate it. And thanks for uh, doing the work that you do to educate folks about these important issues. Oh, well, thanks. Well, it's so important, and especially with this type of topic, because the insider threat is so great. But, you know, I want to find out, you're a lawyer by Mm -hmm. trade, but yet this is a very technical you know, topic. Sure. So how did you first learn about this Iowa lottery fraud? Sure. Uh, you know, my uh, boss was retiring and as he retired, it was one of the cases on his desk that needed to get put on someone else's. And I was the youngest person in the <laughs> office. And so it came and landed onto mine. I had been a little bit involved with it, with the work that he did prior to that. Uh, and obviously, you know, it had been in the news. Uh, there was this lottery yeah. ticket that had uh, won $16 million and yet no one had claimed it up until the very last day of the claim period. Strange. At which point, yeah, strange, strange. Uh, red flags right there. Mm-hmm. At which point um, some attorneys turned it in on behalf of uh, a lawyer who was representing a trust from the uh, nation of Belize. Oh. Yeah. And very then, unusual in very Iowa. Very unusual in Iowa. Very <laughs> unusual. Uh, more red flags. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when the Iowa lottery refused to pay out because uh, the questions that they had about who had bought the ticket and who had possessed it were not getting answered, the claim was withdrawn. So somebody oh. said that their privacy was worth $16 million to them. Wow. Another red flag. So it had been this mystery in the office that no one had 
quite unraveled. And as my boss was retiring, he said, here, I said, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> thanks that's a lot. That's the way it always goes, though, right? I yes, know usually right. the newest person and youngest person gets the things that oftentimes maybe some everyone else doesn't want or that's maybe right. it's like, ah. Oh. That's right. So, you know, you've given a good mm-hmm. overview of, of the red flags and why this seemed suspicious, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, you didn't volunteer to take the case. Did you have any IT background when you got this case? Only enough to feel slightly more comfortable than a lot of folks. Ah, okay. uh, when I was in high school growing up in Decorah, Iowa, I had actually uh, done tech support and web design for a local ISP, oh. internet service provider. Um, and so, but, on the, you know, so I, I was... I had done some coding. I was pretty familiar with HTML, uh, which back then was what everybody used. Mm-hmm. And um, and at the same time, though, most of the tech support that I was doing was Mac-related, which usually is not quite as technical. Right. So, you know, I had some familiarity with it. Um, but at the time, we weren't... Eddie Tippin was not a name that was on the radar. It did not look like... We had no reason to think it was an inside job. And it was just something that we were looking at uh, as we would any investigation trying to figure out what had happened and if there was any crime involved in it. So the investigation started, was the Belize claim the trigger then for that More or less, yeah. When they, once they withdrew the claim, ah. um, you know, there were enough red flags there that the Iowa lottery uh, said to uh, the Division of Criminal Investigation in Iowa, hey, we think you should open up an investigation here. The other thing that was interesting was that the president of that Belizean trust, mm-hmm. um, a gentleman from Canada, had earlier, uh, about a month and a half earlier, claimed the ticket and also claimed to have been the purchaser. Oh. But the thing was that the Iowa lottery had a video of the purchaser, and it was very clear, uh, both from that man's age, but also from what he told the Iowa lottery he was wearing that day, uh, that he was not the purchaser. Interesting. There are enough red flags here that uh, we thought some some digging was warranted. So if they would have gone ahead and turned in and collected their $16 million, do you yeah. think there would have been any case at all? Nope. Uh, you and I would not be sitting here. Nettie Tipton might still today be winning uh, a few million dollars uh, yeah. every now and then. Wow. So... So those red flags are so important for all my listeners out Mm -hmm. there, especially those of you looking at going into uh, especially, you know, fraud investigations or IT investigations. Every little piece of uh, unusual activity is a clue. So, So Eddie Tipton now. So we've got people that you talked about trying to claim it from Canada. Mm -hmm. Where was the ticket purchased it had been purchased in iowa oh it purchased in iowa and so the gentleman from canada said he had been down here uh, on a golf trip or a business trip and just happened to make the purchase at the time um so he uh came in made the or made the purchase made the claim had it rejected and then we started our investigation Uh, my supervisor had traveled to canada to uh interview him he had pointed uh, he, the gentleman from Canada, had pointed to a couple of gentlemen from Houston, Texas, 
And they had attempted to interview those gentlemen from Houston, but they had essentially disappeared uh, when our agents went down to Texas to talk to them. So by the time the case uh, came to my desk as my boss was retiring, there were only a few things left to do, one of which was release the video of the purchaser to try to see if anybody out there might be able to, uh, well, identify the purchaser. Right. So that video was very important, too. So the place where it was um, actually purchased then, a lot of a lot of locations don't keep their videos, the right. the retention period. So you were kind of lucky that they had it for at least almost a year, right? Well, in, in fact, um, this is credit to the Iowa Lottery. One of the security measures that the Iowa Lottery takes when big tickets get purchased mm-hmm. is they go out to wherever that ticket was sold. And they do it within 48 hours because you're exactly right. Ah. Most gas stations, most stores, if if their tills are adding up fine and nobody has robbed the place, yeah. they just tape over that same space within yeah. uh, 72, 48 hours or a week. And so the Iowa Lottery had had this tape in their possession the whole time. It's part of the uh, way that they were able to say to the gentleman who claimed it from Canada when he said he was the purchaser, it's part of the reason they were able to say, yeah, no, you weren't because you're close to 70 and this purchaser is definitely not. And, uh, you said you were wearing a sports coat and, uh, suit, suit pants. And this guy's wearing a leather jacket with a hood and a baseball hat on. Oh, so right there. Yeah. That is a big Yeah. And so that, problem. that, the, the lottery had pulled that video. They had it in their possession. It was, uh, about the only thing left that we had to do was share it with the public and see if anyone could provide us with any helpful information. So at that point in time, you don't know that a fraud has occurred. You're just checking out the red flags to see why are there inconsistencies here in this. So very interesting. So um, how did Eddie Tipton get brought into the the scene? When we released the video, uh, it was a request for public assistance. So we, we posted the video online. We set up an online portal for people to submit tips. And one of those uh, individuals uh, was a gentleman from the state of Maine who worked for the Maine Lottery and who had worked with Eddie Tipton. Wow. Yeah. And he watched that video. And even though the video footage is very grainy, Mm -hmm. you can't make really make out the face. The voice, he said, was a dead ringer for Eddie's Ah. voice. And Eddie has a pretty distinctive voice. It's very low. Yeah. It's gravelly. It's a little bit quiet. And... So Michael Boardman from the state of Maine was one individual who sent in a tip. Um, So we went out and interviewed Eddie. A couple of other people soon thereafter, one from the Iowa Lottery, one from the Multi-State Lottery Association, which was actually Eddie's employer. They also uh, made very credible reports that they had identified and recognized his voice in the video. And we went out and interviewed him. Uh, he said, you know, he wasn't in town that day. He was down south visiting family. Probably in Texas. <laughs> That's right. That's right. In Houston, Texas. Interesting. Uh, what a coincidence. Yeah. That he was from the same place where the uh, Canadian had pointed our investigators. Um, and so, uh, you know, he also didn't disclose at the time that his job uh, as director of security actually meant information security. Oh. And so, and th- in fact, in fact... His job included writing the code that is supposed to pick the random numbers. Well, that's convenient. It's quite convenient. So uh, 
we worked on his alibi. We got, went and got his phone records and bank records, and they showed, in fact, that he had been in town on that day. He had been at uh, a, a Walmart in the Des Moines area, oh. and then you could watch his uh, phone ping off towers all the way down to Texas because he left that day. So he had been uh-huh. in town in the morning and then left. So does he even know at this point that you've got an eye on him? Oh, yeah, okay. because they had gone out to interview him. Oh, okay. Our agents had sat down and interviewed him. Um and talked to him about uh, for 25 minutes just to, you know, hear his story. And sure enough, that story uh, wasn't true. Right. He said he wasn't even in town in that time frame, but he was. He was there that day. And sure enough, um, headed down to Texas, but not after he had plenty of time to buy a ticket. You know, for a guy who is smart enough to write code to, uh, and we'll get into the code here later that mm-hmm. he wrote, but it's kind of interesting that he didn't think enough to realize that his phone would be tracked yeah. uh, wherever he traveled. I mean, he's an IT guy. He's well, a security guy. And, and as, as we learned, um, this wasn't his first rodeo. Mm. So people tend to, uh, people who are committing acts of financial crime or uh, IT uh, crime, they get more and more confident the further yes. they get into their scheme. And the more and more confident they get, the more and more likely they are to make mistakes. Uh, and so he, that's something that he might have been more careful about a few years prior. But at this point, not that we knew it then, but at this point, um, it was a little bit old hat for him. Oh. And uh, so, yeah, he made, some, he made a couple of mistakes that uh, helped get him caught. So this was just his latest fraud. So uh, how many other times did he do It actually, it, that's a great point. It wasn't quite his latest. He had done oh. it again since, and no one had caught on. Uh, so at the time, we knew only wow. about this Iowa ticket. We indicted him based on that ticket. Um, we proceeded, and we did that in part because we were worried about the statute of limitations running, because yeah. it was getting late in the investigative period. <laughs> and so we indicted him. Uh, we proceeded uh, to trial. Uh just within six months. And so we were trying to investigate him and understand more about what his job was at mm-hmm. Muscle, the multi-state lottery association, at the same time that we were litigating and preparing for trial. So we went to trial um, and jury came back with two guilty verdicts. One, for having uh, purchased and passed the possession of the ticket with the intent to defraud, and the other, for actually having rigged the game itself. Even though... Uh, we did not at the time have the hard electronic evidence showing us how he had done it. Ah. What we had was a mountain of circumstantial evidence leading to no other possible conclusion, really. Um, and so he, the jury convicted him based on all of that circumstantial evidence. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until after that that we got a tip uh, that's, that helped us uh, kickstart uh, the rest of the investigation. As it turned out, he had also won jackpots by the time that he was identified um, as the purchaser, he had already run one jackpots in the state of Colorado, Wisconsin, Oklahoma, and then the Iowa ticket, and then also Kansas. So the multi-state lottery association, mm-hmm. they ran all of those lotteries mm-hmm. in the other states, correct? That's right. that's so right. that's how he was able to go to other states. It's not just Iowa, that's it's right. many states. That's right. So isn't there isn't it illegal for a person who's working for the lottery to actually purchase a ticket? Well, yes. Now, technically, 
because he didn't work for the Iowa lot. He didn't work for the Iowa lottery, but he was a vendor, right? So yeah. the multi-state lottery association is a vendor to the lottery. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so it was illegal for him to purchase a ticket. However, you can have something that's illegal and yet there might not be a criminal penalty for, for breaking that law. Ah. And that's, that's where that law stood. Just a misdemeanor. You were not even a misdemeanor. Not even a misdemeanor. Not even a misdemeanor, just illegal. Would have been probably grounds for termination, mm-hmm. right? Would have been grounds for the lottery to not pay the ticket if right. they knew it ah. because it was purchased illegally. Yeah. But not a criminal offense. So we had to actually show more than just he was employed as a vendor to the lottery and he purchased the ticket. We had to prove that he had also passed it with the intent to defraud the lottery. And then in addition to that, we had our second count, which was about whether or not he had rigged the outcome. Oh, and that when that gets into the very technical aspects it of does. it then. But before we get into the, that, sure, he had to have help. Somebody was helping right. him, right? Well, not on the inside. Not on the inside. But he definitely had help on the outside yeah. with every one of those tickets, which is, you know, pretty, pretty basic, <laughs> yeah. right? If you are going to uh, be a lottery employee that rigs multiple lottery jackpots, people are going to probably figure it out pretty quickly if you are buying and claiming each of them on your own. Yeah. Uh, So you want to have somebody buy it. You also want to have somebody else claim it. Um, His brother, uh, who was also prosecuted, uh, was involved in the Colorado ticket and the Oklahoma ticket. And then his best friend, Robert Rhodes who was one of those gentlemen that Mm -hmm. the uh, Canadian lawyer pointed our investigators to. He was involved not just in the Iowa ticket, but also the Wisconsin ticket. Interesting. And And so they were all sharing in the the gain, the pot of gold that came from each of those tickets. That's right. And then on top of that, um, at least on two occasions related to his brother's claims in Colorado and Oklahoma, His brother was involved in buying the ticket, but he would convince someone for relatively innocent reasons that he didn't want to claim it. Oh. He'd say, hey, look, uh, you know, my wife and I are kind of on the outs here. I think we might get a divorce. Uh, I don't want her to know about the money. Mm -hmm. Or he'd say, you know, we're we're very church going and really not uh, gambling is really frowned upon. So I don't want her to know about the money. Yeah. So he'd find someone who he could say, if you claim the ticket, I'll let you keep 10%. Yeah. Where it sounds sneaky, but on the other hand, it certainly doesn't sound illegal. And you're right. going to get, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for helping out here. So why not do it? Yeah. Most interestingly, the way he found those two individuals is through a shared passion of Bigfoot hunting. Bigfoot hunting? Bigfoot hunting. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is kind of interesting. Very interesting. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I have... A whole lot else to say about that other than that. It's, it's yeah, true. well, people are interesting. What what uh, is fascinating to me is <laughs> the fact that he he's kind of using the same kind of scheme that you get in a lot of the social media or social engineering uh, phishing scams through email. You know, I'm mm-hmm. the prince of of some country, and I but I can't get my funds. I'll give you ten percent if, if you, you can do it. So it's the same concept. Right. I mean, he was doing it in yep. real life. Yeah. Uh, Oh wow! So, what about his accomplices? Did they uh, did they get any penalties? Or? So Eddie's Eddie's accomplices did the people yeah. that we could prove knew right uh, that the game was in fact rigged, but not the but, ones that were duped. No, not the ones that were duped. And look, uh, you know, if you're not concerned about the truth, and all you really care about is pushing people around, sure. 
I could have indicted folks, even though there mm-hmm. wasn't really good evidence or good logic to suggest that they knew that the entire thing was rigged. Right. But why on earth would Tommy Tipton, the brother of Eddie, yeah. let more people in on the fact that this was a criminal conspiracy? That would be stupid. Yeah. There is no good reason for him to do that when he can get them to do what he wants them to do by keeping them at arm's length from that knowledge. Right. Because the more people you tell oh, that yeah. it's a criminal conspiracy, number one, they're going to be less likely to cooperate. Number two, that's just one more person who could go blab to the authorities about the fact that it's all rigged. Right. So there's no good reason for us to do that. Yeah. Uh, those individuals, um, uh, even if they financially benefited, the, the money that they received, we expected, and the restitution order requires the Tiptons to pay it back. Ah. Because they were the ones that caused the loss to the victims. Right. And... Yeah, why, you know, they were probably needing the money for some reason or another anyway. But yeah, a secret is not a secret if more than one person knows it. That's right. That's right. It's hard to get away from it. Right now, we have to take a quick break for uh, our sponsors. So uh, I'm speaking today with Rob Sand, the current state of Iowa auditor and former Iowa assistant attorney general. And he had a successful prosecution of Eddie Tipton uh, for the Iowa lottery fraud case in 2015. And we're going to get into the technicalities when we come back from our break. So I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions using my email, Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my privacy guidance site. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. 
Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm speaking today with Rob Sand about his successful prosecution of the Eddie Tipton Iowa Lottery fraud case in 2015. So, Rob, you, you were talking about how Eddie Tipton not only was a security officer, but he also wrote the code. So I think a lot of our listeners, they're probably thinking security officers don't do programming too, Mm -hmm. or at least they don't write applications code. That's right. So what was the situation with Eddie that allowed him to have all of this access? Yeah, he was um, working for the Multi-State Lottery Association, which is a fairly small shop. Mm -hmm. Um, They're headquartered in Urbandale, Iowa. And... I'm quite sure they're under 20 full-time employees. Oh, wow. They might be closer to 10. Um, it might be 15, but somewhere in there. But, you know, yeah. it wasn't a big organization. And right. although they had some checks and balances, um, including uh, a third-party verification system, oh. Eddie knew where the checks and the balances were. Right. Eddie knew what exactly it was that the third-party verifi- verifier did. Mm -hmm. and what they didn't do. And so Eddie really, at the end of the day, knew what the entire system was and and how to essentially um, get some false code in there that wouldn't pick random numbers, that would pick numbers he would would be able to predict. So for our listeners, he wrote code for a system, Mm -hmm. and the system randomly generated the lottery numbers. It's not like a lot of people might be thinking, oh, well, those are balls that you pick out of a cage, but it's not like that, right? Yeah, Powerball is named Powerball because they pick numbers out of a cage on balls, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hot Lotto and uh, uh, Wisconsin Megabucks game and 2 by 2 the game that they won down in uh, Kansas, these were all... RNG, random number generator based games that the multi-state lottery association ran. Mm -hmm. And so he was involved in building the, uh, the computers themselves in addition to writing the code that the computers would use to actually pick random numbers. So yeah, not a ball based game, but, uh, an IT based game. Yes. Well, and what's interesting with that too, I mean, I started as a systems engineer, so, but it was for a large fortune 100 company. And I know my code always got reviewed and tested before it would be put into production. He was in Mm -hmm. a small area, so he probably didn't have anybody even auditing his code or looking at it before they started using it. So they, they, did, but again, oh. he sort of knew what to expect ah. from their audits. So when this started, when he when he wrote this false code that wasn't a random number generator code, um, the third-party verification went like this. They would review the source code, and they would review the compiled code, and mm-hmm. they would also then test it for randomness. However, uh, prior to, I believe, 2008... They would review the source and the compiled code by having Eddie attach both of them to a single email and oh send them gosh. to him. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Which if, for the uninitiated means that you're taking Eddie at his word yes. that the compiled code is, in fact, from the same source code that he is sending you. Uh, after 2008, they changed that system and they had, the, uh, they had him 
provide remote access to his desktop so they could watch him compile the code. Oh. A little bit better, right? A little bit, An improvement, still not perfect. What they should have been doing this whole time is just spending, you know, the 500 bucks to get somebody a plane ticket in a hotel room and Mm -hmm. fly them out to Iowa to make sure that they're standing over his shoulder watching everything he's doing while he's doing it. Right. Because even if you're remoting in, you're not going to see every keystroke. You're not going to necessarily see every mouse click. Uh, And you're not going to see every monitor if he's got multiple monitors hooked up. So um, even that second system still wasn't robust enough. They were not investing Mm -hmm. enough in their security to make sure that it was preventing problems. But prior to that, it was laughable, right? You literally laughed when I told you what they were doing. I was just thinking, not only that, even the second way. I mean, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when I put on my criminal perspective, I'm thinking, I'll just send them, you know, a good program, even If somebody's there watching me, yeah, they'll watch it and then I'll replace that program mm-hmm. later mm-hmm. with my own, you know, program to do fraud. And the way and the way that it worked allowed for it to almost always be tested for randomness and pass the test. So what Eddie did ah. was he had and he used a very basic uh, random number generator called a Mersenne twister. Uh, it's pretty standard, mm-hmm. and that's what it would use to uh, generate random numbers based off of a seed. Uh-huh. The computer itself used a piece of radioactive material um, and then a Geiger counter to generate the actual seed itself. Oh. So the seed would be very random based off of that radiation, then get fed into the Mersenne twister, which would then, because it has a random seed, would generate random numbers. Right. Um, what Eddie did instead was... He had a, he sent them source code that was clean source code. But prior to compiling it, he added some code to it, compiled it, then deleted the code that he had added. Oh, sure. And so the the clean, the the, uh, source code that you and I or anyone with some coding experience can actually read Mm -hmm. looks clean, but then the compiled code, the zeros and ones that the computer reads, uh, has something else contained in it entirely. Right. And that's one thing I think for our listeners, it's very hard to look at the compiled code and tell right. with any degree of true accuracy that, oh, yeah, that came from the source right. code. And you'd have to get it uh, essentially reverse engineered. Yeah. Uh, which we were able to have Aha. an expert do. Uh, credit to credit to the Wisconsin uh, Attorney General's Office and the Wisconsin uh, D- Division of Criminal Investigation when they found the Wisconsin ticket up there, uh, they really pitched in and helped out. The computers that had been used in Iowa to draw the Iowa number had been wiped uh, to Department of Defense standards three times and then spiked and destroyed. Ah. So we, we could never pull anything off of them. But when we had the Wisconsin computer, they had actually just put their uh, unit in storage and it had just been sitting there. So they were able to go in, get the programs and provide it to, uh, an expert who was able to then review, uh, what had been done and what had been used on there to actually figure out what the extra code was. So that extra code and the reason, uh, that it, uh, was this, and the reason uh, that it was able to surpass, uh, randomness testing will become very clear as I describe it. Uh, What it would do is, Prior to the computer itself going to the Geiger counter mm-hmm. to re- retrieve a seed, it would first ask itself three questions. The first question, is the date May 27th, November 23rd, or December 29th? 
Second, and if, if, if the answer was yes, then proceeded to the second question. Is it a Wednesday or a Saturday? And if the answer to that was yes, then it would proceed to the third question. Is it after 8 p.m.? So the May, he knew that he wanted to have those numbers picked on those days. The actual um, after 8 p.m. was because the drawing Correct. was after 8 p.m. And the drawings were only on Wednesdays and Saturdays. Were only on so, Wednesdays. Okay. So he had three days a year where if the program was running on a day, if that day fell on a Wednesday or a Saturday, and if the drawing was occurring after 8 p.m., it would not end up being random. Aha. Uh-huh. But how often would your randomness testing occur then? Almost never. Right. He just knew that there would be, on average, once a year, because usually out of those three dates, one of them would fall on a Wednesday or a Saturday. Right. He just would know that there would be about once a year where he would be able to predict within a very good degree of certainty what those numbers would be. And so instead, so, so if the computer program is asking itself these questions, says no to any one of them, then it does what it's supposed to do. Right. But if it says yes to all three which again, only Eddie's going to know about, instead of seeding the Mersenne twister with a piece, uh, with a seed from the radioactive material, it instead used a seven variable formula to mm. determine the seed. And the variables in, those, in that formula were all variables that Eddie Tipton was very familiar with. Yeah. It would have to do with, for example, the state where the drawing was occurring. Okay. It would have to do with how many different... Um, CPUs, how many different RNG computers they had set up as a part of their draw arrangement. Mm-hmm. It would have to do with how many times he expected them to uh, restart uh, the computers before conducting the actual draw. But because he was the security consultant mm-hmm. for all of these, he was able to know uh, to a high degree of certainty what those numbers would look like, meaning he could fairly accurately predict what that seed was going to be. And then the thing is, here, a Mersenne twister is technically a pseudo-random number generator. Mm -hmm. It doesn't actually give you truly random numbers. It is only random if you don't know what your seed is going to be. Mm -hmm. But if you know within a good degree of certainty what your seed is going to be or what the range of it is going to be, you can actually predict what the outcome uh, of those numbers is going to be. So he, he or his friend Robert or his brother Tommy would go out and buy tickets for that November 23rd draw or that December 29th draw. Mm-hmm. And instead of buying one and knowing that they were going to win, they might buy a couple hundred. Because, well, and they didn't know the exact numbers though. Cause, That's right. Because it was a, a range of That's combinations. Right. But you and I, for example, would literally be making our guesses based off millions of combinations. Yes, yes. They would just have a couple hundred combinations right. that they would need to play. So you make a very small upfront investment. Mm-hmm. You know, you spend a couple hundred dollars, uh, a few hundred dollars on lottery tickets, but you're pretty much guaranteed that one of them is actually going to be a winner. So that's very clever because very I was clever. I was trying to make it more simplistic out if, yeah. in my blog post, but he actually did try to hide it in a way by doing right. that to having the three factors. Right. 
Right. But then also the fact that he didn't pick the exact numbers himself and put it in the code, it was still generated so it wouldn't be caught as easily. That's right. And so he had this scheme going from 2005. 2005. Uh, The last uh, ticket that they had won was in 2011. Holy cow. But then, but that was, again, uh, right around the same time that the Iowa ticket uh, was losing its validity, right? Oh, yeah. So then there was this investigation that launched, and after that point, they had not uh, purchased any, or, or they had not claimed any other tickets. So had we not launched the investigation, had we not done the investigation, had we not released the video that identified him, had yeah. we not brought charges against him, technically speaking, that might not happen, but he could be sitting there today in 2020 if that same piece of code was still in use. Yes. And he could be um, still winning rigged jackpots. In fact, in fact, that piece of code was still getting installed in computers, in random number generators coming out of muscle as recently as August 12th, 2013. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. It happens to be my birthday. Well. So it was, a, it was kind of a neat birthday present. Yes. Because that date was actually very useful for us in the second prosecution. So we, we brought him to trial on the first one, just the Iowa ticket, won that case, and then expanded the investigation, found the other tickets, and to protect ourselves uh, in terms of the uh, uh, statute of limitations running, because he was appealing his first oh. trial, we huh. looked for the last time that he in, had installed false code. And as it turns out, uh, August 12th, 2013, put us within the original three-year statute of limitations. And so we could use that as part of his ongoing criminal conduct oh, to good. make sure we captured all of his conduct without having to depend on an extension to the statute of limitations. Oh, good. Yeah. So what about the physical as- aspect? Because it seemed like in the news reports, they were talking about how this the machine, mm-hmm. uh, the computer, was in a secured room. Oh, yeah. With surveillance cameras. Oh, yeah. So how do you get around those surveillance cameras? Launching that, uh, or picking those numbers is like launching a nuclear missile. But that's <laughs> when you're drawing them. Right. That's after the computer's built. That's after the code is written. Yeah. None of that stuff, if you're Eddie Tipton and you decide to do what Eddie Tipton does, none of that stuff matters. Right. So you you have these computers installed in a draw room. The draw room is locked. It's under video surveillance. Uh, when you go in, you've got to have your key. You go in with an auditor. You have two, three, or four computers installed in the room. Right. You might flip a coin or have a def- another way to... to choose which one you're going to use. You then approach that computer. Your staffer has one key. Your auditor has another key. Mm-hmm. They both have to put their own different keys in and use them to unlock the computer after the auditor checks the seal ah, on the okay. computer to make sure it matches the auditor's records. Right. Then you finally have access to the computer and you run your test draws. So you have three people that are involved, the two with the keys, the auditor. And then the draw, yeah, the auditor's got a key, and then you've got your staff with the key, and then you've probably got your draw manager. So yeah. usually three people. Plus a surveillance camera, Plus so it knows who's camera. in there. But none of that matters if long before those computers were even built, the code itself was installed yeah. and, was, and was false. So he didn't even need to get into the room. As it turns out, no. But... We, uh, prior to us learning all of this, Mm -hmm. when we were trying the original uh, case, uh, 
in Iowa when we just knew about the one Iowa ticket. Our theory was that, and and it and it there's still decent evidence to support it. Um, our theory was that he had been in, we knew he had actually been in the draw room. Oh, wow. Uh, just about a month before the draw, which was very unusual for him. Right. The computers, they don't, the RNG computers, they have no internet access. And so their mm-hmm. clocks occasionally uh, diverge from the actual time. Ah, And sure. so he had been in with the purpose um, of correcting the clocks. Like daylight savings time change yeah. or something? Yeah, or just a, a slight drag. So you might right. be off by a minute, you know? Uh-huh. Um, however, the cameras that were running at the time were only recording about one out of every 80 seconds. Oh, one out of eight. So that would look weird though, wouldn't it? On, oh, if yeah. you looked at the video. One out of every 80. So he would, so you would see only his movement where he happened to be for one second out of almost a minute and a half, which, huh. and of course, because he would know how the cameras are working and whether or not there's any malfunctions. Right. Or at least he'd have the ability to know that. And where it's pointing. Yeah. He uh, he would know that uh, he might have the ability to walk in and install uh, code in those circumstances without necessarily being caught. So how did he install it? Did it have like a, a USB port on there? Or? He, he, he could have, yeah. It had a USB port on there. He was very interested in rootkits, um, ah, which, yes. which can be designed to basically take over a computer and do anything the rootkit wants to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, had the ability really to walk in and because the other people in the room with him were not IT experts by any means. Oh, okay. They testified under oath, you know, if Eddie had put a thumb drive in the computer and said, oh, I just got to install one more thing, we would have said, okay. Sure. Yeah. We trust Eddie. Mm-hmm. We believe that Eddie's doing his job and we have no reason to suspect he's doing anything else. Now, when we look back with all we know, that theory, uh, it, it, it has evidence behind it and it has enough evidence behind it to support a conviction but at the end of the day he wouldn't have had to do that because as we know now mm-hmm. uh, the material itself uh, the code itself would have Was been there. picking an, uh, random num- a non-random number. So why did right. he do that? I wonder. Why did he do which? Get into the get in with the, the root kit was that just because he well, was? Well uh, he, he may not have. Ah, okay. But that, that was, was just, that was the one of our one of multiple theories, theories. that we were okay. presenting at the first trial because again, the computer that we had had been destroyed. Yes. And so okay. we had no electronic evidence to go off of. But there were other pieces of this too. I mean, that computer ultimately was installed and um, and, and kept in his office. Oh. During the installation process, right, it, he had access to it at all times. He oftentimes worked late hours when no one else was around. And again, he had the keys to the kingdom when it came to IT. And he was trusted. And he was trusted. And so even though he, even though the, we presented evidence that he could have gone in on that date when he was in the draw room and actually installed a root kit at that time, we also presented evidence that he wouldn't have necessarily had to right. because he always had access to that computer. And at the end of the day, he also wrote the code that picked the random numbers, right? Yeah. So that jury, when they were looking at this, knew that there were lots of ways that he could do it. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the question really was, do you think that he just just so happened to randomly yeah. decide to buy a ticket that turns yeah. out to be a winner, but then he doesn't claim and somehow it ends up in the guy, hands of this guy from Canada who just so happens to point 
uh, this guy in Texas that he got it from, who also coincidentally just so happens to be Eddie Tipton's best friend. Right. Right. There, and, and again, a very valuable uh, jackpot. One of the, if I don't think, I'm not sure if it was the record. If it wasn't the record, it was the next highest oh, record wow. for that particular game. That particular game was the most valuable game that Muscle was in charge of, Hot Lotto. Yeah. So there were lots of circumstantial, a mountain, crushing mountain of circumstantial evidence where you just say, I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, you might, I not, might not be able to tell you how this microphone in between the two of us works. Right. But I know from circumstantial evidence from, from life experience, because I'm 37 years old and it's 2020. Yeah. That it's recording our voices and that they're going into a series of zeros and ones and mm-hmm. that eventually... I could listen to this recording. It'll sound very similar to my voice and your voice. Right. Well, here's another thing that I think a lot of people wonder about. Why did he start to do it to begin with? Because that's something that I had an investigator (laughs) friend that told me there's going to be 10% of people who will always try to Mm. do the wrong thing, 10% who will never try to do the wrong thing, Mm. but 80% who will look for opportunity or feel like they deserve more. I mean, did he feel like he deserved that money or? So almost every white collar criminal I have ever prosecuted has had some grievance Mm -hmm. that they have in their mind used to justify taking more than what they are owed. Right. I, but, and so, yes, Eddie has said that he was overworked and underappreciated. Oh. That he was overworked and underpaid. And um, he had some struggles in his personal life. And this is, I'm saying this as someone who, I actually like Eddie. Yeah. Um, he and I developed a rapport during the prosecution and the investigation and the trial that is unlike any I had with any other defendant and unlike any I, I ever saw with any other, um, any other prosecutor and defendant. Uh, after his guilty plea, he turned and came across the aisle and offered me a handshake. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, See after how long? How yeah, long did he get yeah. sent to prison for? My expectation is that he'll end up serving. I would I would guess under seven years. Ah. Te- technically speaking, in Iowa, we have um, non indeterminate sentencing. So the, the the legal status would be up to twenty five years, but no one serves that long. Right. I honestly. Uh, Three, four years uh, would not surprise me, but seven was, would be probably a little bit more reasonable. Mm-hmm. But this is with the benefit, obviously, of some hindsight because right. he's still there right now. Yeah. And it's been a few years. So so what do you think here in the, the final parts of our show? I mean, what do you think people should take away from this situation, either yeah. with regard to trusted insiders in general, or yeah. do you think the bigger lesson is about the lottery? I mean, what, what do you want our There's, listeners to take away? Sure. There's two answers to that. One, trust but verify. And two, we've all heard that before. Mm-hmm. Trust mm-hmm. but verify. Well, here's the other thing. You've got to actually mean it. And the only way that you show you mean it is by doing the work necessary mm-hmm. to find out. Uh, This case at the time that it was handed to me was mostly a dead end. Uh, We wouldn't have had to have released the video. 
Mm-hmm. There was a lot of things that we just couldn't have done. And, and, you know, no one ever would have known that we didn't do them, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the end of the day, we did the right thing. We kept doing the job. And it's nothing different than just doing the work. If you're not sure about something, you should keep asking questions until you're sure of what you need to know. And if you haven't done that, then you're probably not doing what you're supposed to. And you are trusting and you're not verifying. Verifying takes work. Yes. And always follow up on those red flags because usually they could be, you know, not mean anything or they could mean somebody's how yeah. much was the lottery? Right. Well, how right. much was it? Like sixteen million. Sixteen million for 16 million? for the Iowa ticket alone. Holy cow! At the end of so. the day, uh, yeah, you follow up on the red flags because they might be nothing, or they might lead you to unraveling the largest lottery rigging scheme in American history. In American history, that's, right. <laughs> that's going to be quite the uh, the thing for his ancestors to look back on now, too. Indeed. So, well, thank you so much for being on today yeah. and talking about this. Thanks because for having me. It's been me. very instructive. And I know now where my theories had holes, it's just fascinating to there me that go. he had the three different factors as opposed yeah. to the more simplistic ones. So he had to think that through. Yeah. So uh, today I've been speaking with Rob Sand, current auditor for the state of Iowa and formerly an assistant attorney general for the state of Iowa who successfully prosecuted Eddie Tipton in the Iowa lottery fraud case in 2015. Please send your feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic or similar topics, just let me know. And uh, let me know if you have another topic to suggest. My email is RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. If you cannot make our scheduled live time or first aired time on uh, the first Saturday of each month, you'll be able to listen to the recordings. And, of course, you can find recordings of all my past shows on iTunes, Mobile Play, TuneIn, and, of course, all the other podcast channels that are out there. In addition to the voiceamerica.com business channel website and just get in touch with me if you ever have any needs for security or privacy. So I urge you all to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities. If you see a red flag, do something about it. Don't just ignore it. It could mean that something bigger is going on. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Saturday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.